us in his word, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Hello. Good morning. There we go. That's better. Well, listen, it is great to be with you, and I am excited to preach this passage out of 1 Corinthians. Um, for those of you who don't know, we've been here about six and a half years, I think, six years, something like that. My wife, Jill, and three of my four uh, kids are back there. We moved here about I guess six years ago, from Wake Forest, North Carolina, where we lived for eight and a half years. And then before that, we lived in England, which we lived there for about four years, I think. Um, we loved being in the UK, and we liked it because you could visit a lot of places, and it was cheap. I mean, you could get uh, flights to Italy and stuff for a pound, which is basically a dollar twenty now. So that's crazy. Uh, but we, we took advantage of that. One of our places that we loved to go was Scotland. Anybody ever been to Scotland? Sweet. I'm all alone in that. That's good. Scotland's a beautiful place. Um, they talk a little different, but that's okay. Uh, and it's a wonderful, beautiful, green, uh, kind of dramatic landscape. There's one particular place in Scotland. It's called Ayrshire, Scotland, uh, where if you're driving down the road on this particular road in Ayrshire, Scotland, let's just say if you were driving a bike, it's a little different because on this road in Ayrshire, Scotland, if you're riding your bike, you have to pedal really hard to travel downhill. And... On this particular road in Ayrshire, Scotland, if you uh, want to coast, the bike coasts uphill. So you have to pedal hard to go downhill, but you coast uphill. Well, that doesn't seem right, does it? 
I mean, you should be coasting downhill and pedaling hard to go uphill. Why is that? Well, this is a very ancient place, and a lot of people have, uh, you know, put a lot of theories to it. So, one theory was, uh, well, it's a government conspiracy. You know, they were playing with magnets, and it all messed everything up, and the world is, uh, and all that's conspiracy. Uh, another reason why um, that, that people have said this doesn't make any sense is the same reason DJ Smoove gave to uh, the kids in Spider-Man Far From Home. It's the witches. The witches did it. And that's the reason why this is all messed up. Down is up and up is down. Is that the reason why? No. It took some folks to kind of chart the landscape and they said, oh, this is the reason up is down and down is up is not because really up is down and down is up, but the entire landscape is tilted. So what looks down is actually up and what looks up is actually down. It has to do with the way the entire landscape is shifted. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because the passage that we're looking at today is actually a tilted landscape for your life. In the wisdom of God, our world tells us the wisdom of God is down. But actually, it's up. And what our world says is wisdom of the world, they say that's up, that's success. But actually, in the economy of God, that's down. So today, what we're looking at is what Paul taught an ancient church in Corinth about 2,000 years ago. And it's a lesson that you and I need to learn. It's the lesson about the wisdom and the power of God. And what we're going to discover together is this wisdom and this power is not neutral. Listen to me, it's revolutionary. And so what I'd like to do from this passage is offer five reflections from this passage of Scripture. Now what you need to understand is uh, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And you say, well, where's Corinth? Corinth is in ancient Greece, in the Greco-Roman Empire. Uh, it was destroyed around 164 B.C., roughly. Uh, and then it was rebuilt by a guy named Julius Caesar in, I think it was AD, or, uh, 44 B.C., something like that. And what's interesting about this uh, city was when it was rebuilt, it became kind of a, a cultural center. Governor's house and mansion of that region was there. And so it was this kind of crossroads. It was cosmopolitan. It was wealthy. A lot of uh, wise and well-known people lived there. Uh, a lot of, as we'll just, uh, talk about them here in a minute, they were influencers. And so as a result, they held influence and sway over people. This was a cosmopolitan city. And what was happening was because Paul went there to preach and to tell about the good news of Jesus Christ, you had a lot of non-Jewish people, which are called Gentiles, they come to follow Jesus. But they're Greco-Roman citizens, a lot of them. And they grew up in the Greco-Roman world. And so they don't have the same kind of values or virtues or ways of looking at the world that maybe the Jews do. And so when they're following Jesus, Christ is calling them to a different way of being in the world. And they're like, how does that all work? So Paul has to remind them what it means to follow Jesus. And that's really what this passage is about. 
So let's walk through the passage and I'll uh, offer some reflections. The first thing that we need to embrace if we're going to understand this upside down world that Paul presents is number one, we face two destinies. Let me say that again. You and I face two destinies. Paul does not pull any punches when it comes to these destinies. It's one of two. It's not two and a half. It's not 15. It's not 18. It's not 16. It's two. In other words, there's one destiny or another. And look at what it says in verse 18. He says very clearly, the word or the cro- of the cross or the message of the cross, depending on how your translation renders this, the word of the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. You see what Paul does here? He says, our life destiny is on one of two trajectories. Either we are those who are perishing or we are those who are being saved. There's no in-between. And for us in our world today, we don't like that because it pigeonholes us. It puts us in a category and we like to think that we're all precious snowflakes and no two is alike. We're all different. But Paul says, no, actually as human beings, you fit into one of two categories. That's it, two. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, did Paul make this up? No. Actually, this is an ancient teaching from the Old Testament. And this ancient teaching comes from, for instance, the book of Proverbs, where he says, those who are following the Lord, fearing God, are those who are pursuing wisdom, but those who are not pursuing the fear of the Lord and pursuing God, they're uh, pursuing folly, wisdom and folly. Those who are perishing, those who are not, those who are being saved. That's what the Old Testament teaches. And you might say, well, Jesus is different than the Old Testament. Surely Jesus doesn't give us this doctrine in two ways. Yes, he does. When you think about the teaching of Jesus, he's not novel. He's not uh, just making stuff up out of thin air. Jesus' teaching is built on the scriptures, the word of God. And so when Jesus is actually teaching, for instance, you remember the story that he gave about the the, the folks who built houses. In one of these stories that he told, he said, there was a person who built his house on sand. And when the storms came, it lashed the house and the house fell. Why? Because it was built on sand. But contrast that with the person who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came, because his house was built on the rock, it didn't fall. And of course, Jesus was talking about himself. Build your life on the rock or don't. You build your life on the rock, your house, your life will stand. You don't. It's like building your house on sinking sand. It's going to fall. In a similar way, Paul is saying, there's only two kinds of people in the world. And you say, no, no, there's 18 different kinds of people, 64 different gender identities. There's a bazillion ways of looking at life. And Paul says, no. People are people are people. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, what differentiates the two? What makes the difference between those who are perishing and those who are being saved? Look at what he says, verse 18. 
the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. So really what Paul says is we're facing two destinies. Me, you, your Uncle Henry, the weird aunt who lives, you know, with all the cats. All of us. You say, who are you talking about? I don't know. I'm just making these people up, right? Whatever the case is, if you are a human being, you and I both face two destinies. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now, that's the first reflection from this passage. So what differentiates us is what we do with the cross, this message of the cross. And this goes to the second reflection from this passage. Paul tells us the message of the cross is the cornerstone of our life. Look at verse 18. The message of the cross, or the word of the cross, is foolishness for those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for us or to us who are being saved. You see this again in verse 23. Check it out. He says here in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, yet those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's he talking about this message of the cross, this word of the cross? Well, what he's talking about is this message of the cross that Jesus is real. He gave his life because he loves us. And he wants us not to be emburdened or shackled with sin and addiction. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to this world. He wants us to be liberated from our sin. He wants us to be fully alive. He wants us to be reconciled to God. He wants us to be freed and liberated and forgiven so that we can forgive others. He gave his life, shed his blood on the cross. That's the message of the cross. He gave his life for you and for me. And he rose from the dead, defeating death, demonstrating that he is not a charlatan or a liar. He actually rose from the grave. The power of God raised him from the dead. He is who he says he is, the one who can defeat death, hell, the grave, release our shackles. That's the message of the cross. And what Paul is saying is the message of the cross is not something that we kind of put in our back pocket like we put our iPhone in our back pocket. Yeah, I know that. That's good. Paul is helping us understand the message of the cross is the cornerstone of our lives. Now, how many of you have ever seen or heard of a cornerstone? Somebody say cornerstone. Cornerstone. Okay, what's a cornerstone? A cornerstone, if you don't know, is in the ancient world, it was this block of stone that set the foundation of the house and they would build the walls of the house off of it. And in fact, that cornerstone became the foundation point, the anchor point for the entire structure. So in other words, the cornerstone is not just secondary to the house, it's essential for giving the house its shape. 
What we need to understand is Paul is not saying that this message of the cross is something that we fit into our lives like we fit an event in the calendar of our schedule or our schedule. It's not the way that works. He's saying it's the cornerstone of our lives. The, the message of the cross is the story of Jesus' redemption of the world, the story of his reconciliation of humans and God. The story of the cross is that you and I are unable to save ourselves. We can't work our way up to God. God worked his way down to us. The story of the cross is not what we do for God. I'm a good person. I like to do good things. I like to help people in need. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Uh, maybe at the end of the, my life, uh, all the bad deeds will be like this, but the good deeds will outweigh the bad. Maybe that's what it's about. That's not the message of the cross. All of our good deeds, God says, are like horribly filthy rags that really just need to be tossed aside. The message of the cross is not what we have done for God, but what God has done for us. And that's really good news. That means we don't earn our way to God. The message of the cross is Jesus has given us life as a free gift that we receive. We just hold out our hands and say, I believe, I receive. That's the message of the cross. This means, my friends, that when you and I build our lives on something, and we all do, you might be building your life on a relationship or on achievement or success or likes or fill in the blank. Those cornerstones won't hold the weight of our house. There's only one cornerstone that can bear the weight of our lives, and that's the cornerstone of Jesus. So Paul says, what differentiates those who are perishing from those who are not is the message of the cross. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing with the message of the cross? Have you built your life on Christ? If you have, you fit into that category of those who are being saved. But if you haven't, we're perishing. We're building our house on sand. But the message for those of us who build our, our lives on sand here, you don't have to. Christ has gone to the far country of our sin to bring us home. We can experience the forgiveness that only Jesus offers. Now, this leads us to this third reflection from this passage. Paul describes this message of the cross as wisdom and power. Wisdom. When you think of wisdom, you think of somebody maybe like Yoda or Gandalf. Or if you're more into... Uh, Hogwarts or something like that. Who's the, 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 the big guy in Hogwarts that died? Dumbledore. Maybe you think of him. Maybe you think of Oprah. It's fine. Whatever. When we think of wisdom, you might think of someone who knows a lot, has a lot of experience. Is that what wisdom that Paul is talking about, the wisdom of God? No, it's different than this. 
What Paul is saying, the wisdom of God, however we'll define it, which we'll talk about in just a second, he's saying the wisdom of God is greater and different than your wisdom or mine. Let me say that again. Paul is teaching us here, and the Corinthians, that God's wisdom is different and greater than your wisdom or mine. You can see this in verses 19 through 25. Look at it says, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe, believe in what? The message of the cross, through the foolishness of what's preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach the message of the cross, Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul speaks here of the power of God's wisdom in the cross. God's wisdom is not like your wisdom or mine. Our wisdom is get the biggest, baddest, strongest, and wipe everybody out. That's not the message of the cross. The message of the cross is Jesus, who is God, took the form of a servant so that he could serve you and me, not overpower us. The message of the cross is that God loved us so much that he sent his son. And Jesus came willingly. And there wasn't a lot of fanfare. All his friends betrayed him. He was murdered. Yay. The message of the cross is, in that humiliation, God has been glorified and our lives have been redeemed. That doesn't make any sense. But God's wisdom is different than your wisdom or mine. You know, in Paul's day in Corinth, the way that they described wisdom, especially this is a Greco-Roman city made of primarily Greeks, and non-Jews. And in those days, these influencers were parading themselves about because it was a cosmopolitan city. And they talked about the good life. They talked about what was wise and what was good and how they should be and what, made, what comprised a life worth living. And they talked about these things. And what's interesting about the way that they talked about these things is they spouted off their opinions. This is what life should be like for you. And it was usually an aristocrat male who told everybody else what they should be like. Now, why do I tell you that? Because these influencers, oh yeah, they were exerting influence. They had power and prestige and title. They probably had land. But in that city, there were slaves and poor. And women had very little rights. So they were saying, this is the good life. This is the good life. This is the good life. This is what you should do. This is who you should look like. This, let me influence you. And all the while, 
people were being left marginalized, left behind, and left to the side. In Corinth, the notion of human wisdom was influential, it was pervasive, but it was exclusive. The point is, quite simply this, Paul is saying, look, church at Corinth, you have people telling you what wisdom is about. But Paul is saying, God's wisdom doesn't look like that. So what's changed? Not much. Parading themselves across our screens and our devices, people are saying, to live the good life, this is what you should look like. To live the good life, this is what you should sound like. If they live the good life, this is what you should wear. And our culture eats it up like Sunday lunch. But is that wisdom? Not according to Paul. God's wisdom is the only wisdom that leads to life. God's wisdom is the only wisdom that has power behind it to liberate you from sin or addiction, greed or hate. And the world doesn't like God's wisdom. In fact, the world looks at a rugged cross and they say, this is crazy. In fact, it's foolishness. People who believe in a dying God, that's ridiculous. Believe that Jesus can forgive you of your sins? That's silly. How antiquated. Antediluvian. How, how could you think such things? It's foolishness to those who are perishing. That's God's wisdom. But to those who believe, believe in Jesus. Listen, this is the power of God. In other words, the way that God is asking us to be in the world, in the life that we have in Christ, is wisdom that brings life. It is indeed the good life. Not what somebody promised on a screen, but what Jesus has for you and for me. Now, how many of you have been watching uh, all of the, the, the hype about the, the new moon? mission. Anybody? I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see us go back to the moon. For those of you who still don't believe that we ever went to the moon, we can have a conversation about that afterwards, right? So this lunar mission is happening. SpaceX, it's a big deal. NASA, it's going to be amazing. Right now, SpaceX is also planning on a, a trip to Mars, colonization of Mars. Now imagine you were invited to a special conversation between the lead scientists of the lunar mission or the Mars mission, and you were invited to go into the room to talk about the details of the plan. This is how we're going to do it. So you show up, and the two scientists are there. One is the lead scientist of the lunar mission, one is the lead scientist of the Mars mission, and they start walking you through, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. This is all the preparations that we've made. Let me talk to you about uh, all the physics involved, the astrophysics involved. And you're like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. yeah, good, good, good. Excuse me. I, I need to draw this to your attention. All that sounds good and fine, 
but I think the entire plan is flawed. And they, they look at you, oh, oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Tell me why you think this is flawed. And you respond back to them, well, lead scientists, I know you've uh, spent years of your life planning this, but, you know, I am an student, and I can tell you that uh, after extensive research on Google, I have discovered that uh, there are some aspects of your plan that are flawed. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, madscientist.com says that, you know, this, uh, Mars mission should look a little bit like this. And uh, crazy science guy on, uh, you know, this website says, in fact, the lunar mission should be uh, tackled this way. What do you have to say to yourselves? Well, those scientists are going to be like, uh, well, I hate to say this, man, but you don't know what you're talking about. We've spent our lives designing this. You're, you're trying to come at us with Google? Come on. Now, why do I say that story? Because it's ridiculous to think that we would confront the head scientists of the lunar mission or the Mars expedition. We would be crazy to challenge them based on our wisdom. And yet, in our lives... That's exactly how we treat God. Oh, God, I know that you've created life. Uh, I, I know that you've told me what is good and what the Lord requires of me. And I, I understand, God, that uh, you died on a cross for my sins and you rose victoriously so that I might re uh, experience resurrection life. But, you know, uh, based on my extensive uh, life experience in Google, I think my life and my wisdom trumps yours. See, what was happening in Corinth, ladies and gentlemen, is that apparently there were some Corinthian Christians still struggling with what it meant to follow the Lord. They were pursuing Corinthian wisdom. And it looked good. It was familiar. It sounded good. And what Paul was saying is, no, the wisdom that God has is greater and better than what you think. It's better than what you're embracing. Don't embrace what the world offers as wisdom. It's foolishness. But everybody thinks it's great. Trust the one who made life to give you the good life. So Paul is saying that God's wisdom is greater than your wisdom or mine. But here's the second aspect of this. God's wisdom is different than your wisdom or mine. And let me just be really clear. Oftentimes when we think about our wisdom or what our friends tell us or we get you know, our way of being in the world oftentimes from our friends or our devices and we think, well, this is normal. Normal doesn't mean right. God's wisdom is different than my wisdom. In the ancient world, particularly in the time when Paul preached, listen, the wisdom of the day was exclusive. It tended to reinforce inequities. The wisdom of the day was usually self-serving. The wisdom of the day is usually self-glorifying. Think about these influencers who had parade themselves into Corinth and give the, you know, this is the good life, this is the good life, this is the good life. And all the while, people are patting them on the back saying, this, you're so wonderful, you're so wise. Wisdom of the day is usually self-glorifying. The wisdom of the day is usually xenophobic or racist or sexist. That's the wisdom of the day. 
So what's changed? Not much. If we're looking for wisdom from this world, here's the reality. We are going to be disappointed because the world's version of uh, wisdom is different than God's wisdom. God's wisdom is different in that, guess what? God's wisdom breaks chains. God's wisdom saves lives. God's wisdom puts an end to division and ends wars. That's God's wisdom. And if you're curious about this, I would just encourage you, go read Isaiah 61 and then read how Jesus saw his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The two are very similar. The wisdom of God is liberative. The wisdom of God brings people home. And this is the fourth thing that I would say about this passage. God's wisdom, it's greater and different than our wisdom, but God's wisdom is also revolutionary. You see this in verses 26 through 30. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many had noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God's chosen what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God's chosen what's insignificant and despised in the world. What's viewed as nothing to bring nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So that no one may boast in his presence. I mentioned these influencers in Paul's day. People were glorified for their oratory skills, for their influence, for their intelligence, for their power. We do the same thing, don't we? When we look at people that we want to model our lives after, it's oftentimes the persons that we think of as, well, they've got it all together. Oh, I could never be like them. They're so rich. They live in such a nice house. They live in the right neighborhood. They've got the right job. They're clearly superhuman. I've got to be like them. What's so revolutionary about the good news of Jesus Christ is what Paul says is, hey, if you don't have any abilities, good. If you feel like you don't measure up, excellent. If you feel like uh, you don't have a good background, great. God takes the insignificant, the least, the left out, and through the cross, qualifies them for service in God's kingdom. Not because of what they do for God, but what God has done for them. So you might be saying, Heath, uh, this all sounds good, but you don't want me to be a role model. I mean, if you knew my background, if you knew what I've done, if you knew what I did last night, you don't want me in front of anybody doing anything at any time. You don't know what my family history is like. It's shame what my family history is like. You don't know what I've been into, Heath. You, you, here's what I would say. The good news of Jesus Christ is not what we have done for God or didn't do for God. It's what God has done for us, lifted us up out of our shame. And this Bible says it this way, he's given us beauty for ashes. So you might think I'm unqualified. In God's eyes, you're qualified. Well, I'm unlovely. Great. In God's eyes, you're lovely. Well, I'm not worthy. In God's eyes, you're worthy. God takes the insignificant 
and gives the significance that comes from him. He takes the wisdom of the world and turns it on its head. This is the world upside down. He makes the least significant significant for his purposes. This is why Paul tells us that God's wisdom is revolutionary. You don't have to be someone who is well-known or does great things. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be willing and available to the Lord Jesus. And God will use you. Paul says in verse 26, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Look, not many of you are wise. Doesn't have to be how smart you are. Not many of you are powerful. Doesn't mean how great you are. Not many of you are noble. It doesn't matter what kind of station in life you were born to. God has chosen what the foolish in the world to shame the wise. Chosen what's weak to shame the strong. God's chosen what's insignificant, despised, treated as worthless. And God's raised them up to do mighty things for him. These verses reveal God's wisdom is what he brings to us, not what we bring to God. Thus, God loves everyone without distinction. And this is where it's so revolutionary. In the ancient world, particularly in Corinth, listen, social distinctions existed everywhere. You had these influencers saying, oh, this is the good life. And all the while, listen, you had people who were Romans who had certain rights that barbarians didn't. Romans and barbarians. You had Jews those in the family of God, and those who were not, Gentiles. You had slaves and free people. You had male and female, and all these distinctions and divisions were designed to keep people in their place. Society was anything but equal and without class. But the cross renders all of these divisions redundant and obsolete. The only separation that counts in Paul's thinking is between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Do you see how this is revolutionary? When we think about following Jesus or the way of Jesus, don't think cold religion. Think a world in revolution, the revolution of love that's found in Christ. And the reason why this is so revolutionary is not just because of what God's love does for us. Listen, it's because of what it motivates us to do for others. The reason why this reality of the cross is so revolutionary is because of this basic fact. If God loves us like that, he calls us to love one another in the same way. The way that John in 1 John says it, he says it this way, he says... If anyone says that he loves God but he hates his brother, he's a liar and the truth of God isn't in him. If God has loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. We love and serve others not because of cold obligation. We love and serve others not because of what they bring to us or what they can do for us. We love and serve others because that's how Jesus loved us first. Can I ask you a question? Maybe in your class, at work, in your apartment complex, in your neighborhood, who are those that are least 
unloved and left out. God calls us to love them. God calls us to engage them. Not with our love, but with the love of God. What we need to understand about this is how revolutionary this is. I was, uh, one theologian describes the revolutionary love of Jesus like this. He puts it in poetry. And I want to read this for you. He says, quote, all groups, all societies are built on the model of a pyramid. Everybody say pyramid. At the top of the pyramid are the powerful, the rich, the intelligent. They're called to govern and to guide at the bottom They're the immigrants, the slaves, the servants, the people who are out of work, have mental illness or different forms of disabilities. They're excluded. They're the marginalized. But in the revolution that Jesus provides through his shed blood on the cross, he says this, Jesus is taking the place of a person at the bottom, the last place, the place of a slave. We see this when he washed his disciples' feet in the Gospel of John. And when Peter is thinking about Jesus in the Gospel of John, it's impossible. Don't don't wash my feet, Jesus. What does Jesus say? Uh, Unless you get your feet washed, you have no place with me. Okay, then wash my head too. Okay, thanks. For Peter, what Jesus does is impossible. But little, little does Peter realize that Jesus came to transform the model of society. From a pyramid to a body. And in a body, everybody has a place. Every person has a place, whatever their abilities or disabilities. Where each one is dependent upon one another. Each is called to fulfill a mission in the body of humanity and the church. There is no last place. Jesus transforms our society's model of a pyramid to that of a body. This is one of the reasons why the church is not called a hierarchical structure. It's called the body of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, Heath, I feel like I am the pinky fingernail. Great. Be the pinky fingernail with all the rigor that you can muster. Me, personally, I feel like I'm the callus on the big toe but I'm gonna be that callous to the best of my ability. Why? God has called me to be a part of his body. There's no last place. Jesus turns the structure of our society upside down. He alters the picture of power. Jesus gets to the feet of the disciples to wipe away the muck and the mire, to wash and cleanse them, and in so doing, Jesus replaces the pyramid structure with that of a body, and my friends, we get to live that out in our world. That's the wisdom of God. That's the power of God. It's revolutionary. This brings us to our last reflection from this passage. God's wisdom demands a difference. Look at verses 30 to 31. He says this, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 
When Paul drives home this reality that we find in Christ, he talks about it in terms of redemption, righteousness, and sanctification. Righteousness is quite simply this. We are reconciled to God through the shed blood of Christ to the glory of God. That's this idea of righteousness. God has given us clothes of righteousness that are properly his so that we might serve him in, in, our, in, in the world. This idea of sanctification, we are made holy. That's what sanctification means. Made holy and set apart for God's good purposes. And then finally, this idea of redemption, we are bought with a price for God's purposes. So we're talking about when Paul drives home this idea of God has given us in Christ righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Here's the reality. What we need to understand is we are put on purpose for this earth. Not for ourselves, but for the one who's given us life. This demands something from us. It demands a difference. It demands a different way of being in the world. It demands a different way of living in the world. It demands that we are different. The problem with Corinth is they kept going back and forth. Well, I, you know, I've, I've lived here all my life. This is the way we do things. And Paul is trying to shake them out of their apathy. This is not the only way of living in God's world. He calls us to live differently, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you think about God's wisdom demanding a difference in your life and mine, uh, how different does our life look from everybody else? I'm not saying be weird just for the sake of being weird, but I'm saying if God calls us to something different, that means that we don't use people as means to our end. It means that we don't talk bad about people. It means that uh, we don't just vent our spleen on yik-yak and call it good. Our lives look different. Our way of being in the world is different. We engage people with care. Uh, we, we can engage a person of the opposite sex without our mind going insane. Why? Because everything, all of life has been redeemed by Christ. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God demands a difference. I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want to pray over you. Our Father, whatever it is that you've called us to, Lord, help us to embrace the wisdom and power of God this morning. For some in this room, it may mean that they have never stepped across the line of faith. They don't know you as Savior and Lord, Lord Jesus. I pray that today they would just say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. For some of us in this room, the Spirit, you've been working and uh, you've told us to lay some things down. Lord, help us to lay those things down. For some of us, you've told us to pick something up. Lord, whatever it is, our answer is yes. And now, Lord, as we turn to worship you through the Eucharist, Lord, I ask that you would uh, help us to receive with gratitude in Christ's name. Amen.